This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Jane R. Goodall, an emeritus professor at Western Sydney University, joined me in the studio to talk about her new book, The Politics of the Common Good, Dispossession in Australia. Then environmentalist, former Australian Greens leader and former Senator Bob Brown joined me to talk about climate change, the fight to stop the Adani Carmichael coal mine, as well as the conservation issues facing Victoria and Tasmania. Then, finally, Gabrielle Jackson, Associate News Editor for The Guardian Australia, joined me in the studio to talk about her new book, Pain and Prejudice, A Call to Arms for Women and Their Bodies. We look at the inequities that women face in the medical system. So without further ado, I'm really pleased now to welcome into the studio Jane R. Goodall, who is an emeritus professor with the Writing and Society Research Centre at Western Sydney University. And she's written a book called The Politics of the Common Good, Dispossession in Australia, And uh, you might also be familiar with Jane's work from other pieces, including the fact that she's a regular columnist on one of my favourite websites, which is Inside Story. And so it's fantastic to have her in the studio with us. And I'm welcome, Jane, now. Hi. Hi. Thank you so much for joining us. Lovely to be here. That's good. On this wonderful sunny morning. Isn't it stunning? I'm um yeah, it's it's a relief really. I've uh, we were just saying that you are based in Canberra. Has has the spring really sprung over in Canberra? Because my memory serves me that it's particularly stunning. It is. The blossom is out and you have to really notice it because it's only like out for five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of trees, they only last a few days or a week. But um, if you look across the lake from the north side, there's this whole row of white blossom trees in front of the gallery and the high court buildings. It's it's extraordinary. It's Is that the one that drops those, like, fluffy... Yeah. Yeah, and, it, and they all blow into the gallery and so you see all this fluff all over the floor. <laughs> Nature invades. Yes. And those massive um, bogong uh, moths. They like special. to go to Parliament House. Yeah. I'm not sure what they think they're finding there, but they are. They're huge. It is funny. Yeah, I I pretty much go every spring, I think, to Canberra, and it's such a beautiful place to be. And the rose gardens um, at Par- Old Parliament House are stunning. Yeah, you don't have to go to Kyoto for cherry blossom. You can go to Canberra. You can. There's our little um, ACT tourism promo that was not at all actually planned. Um, it's so great to have you, though, to talk about politics, which, of course, is quite Canberran. And um, and this book in particular is really fascinating uh, to me, particularly because, I mean, I understand in general the concept of common good and it's bandied about quite a lot as, you know, having it being a really um, respectable aim to have. Uh, and so a lot of progressive uh, people might say that it's important to, you know, be collective and work towards collective benefit. But there are certainly other people who don't subscribe to that aim. So um, maybe we can talk a little bit about those people who have not uh, historically subscribed to the aim of the common good, common good, which you outline in the initial chapter of your book, um, including some people that I've read over the years, like Hayek, Hayek who's a little bit controversial. Um, and uh, yeah, I'd really like to understand a bit of the uh, historical underpinnings of the the kind of competing philosophies, I guess, in a sense. Yeah, and maybe 
in order to avoid a kind of instant history lecture on morning radio, <laughs> feel free. It's though, good it to history. Well, it's good to start at the present. And one of my sort of principles in this book was it's history as backstory. Mm. It's not only how we got to where we are, but how we are still living ideologies and principles that got into the system in the middle of the 20th century. So this is a long time ago. This is 70 years ago we're talking. Um, And I don't think most of us walking around the street are aware of the degree to which we're locked into an ideology because we don't live in communist China or, you know, Russia under Stalin. Those are the places we think of when we think ideology or North Korea. But ideologies, to use the words of Václav Havel, who is the president of um, Czechoslovakia, imprison the mind. Um, So I wanted to go there. But where I started from, it had to do actually with moving to Canberra. I moved there about four years ago. And I thought, oh, one of the things I can do to entertain myself (laughs) is go and watch Question Time in Parliament House, which is quite an interesting thing to do until you actually get to sit in the seat and have to watch these guys and interesting is the last thing it is I mean boring as batshit is not in it I could (laughs) not believe not just the level of discussion but the level of behavior the level of information it was the Turnbull government and Turnbull was putting his hands on his hips and giving the opposition what he called lectures in economics 101, which just served to tell me that he needed to do it himself. Uh, there was uh, Scott Morrison crowing away about jobs and growth, jobs and growth. There were the Dorothy Dixers, you know, please tell us, Minister, how wonderfully you've managed this and that and the other area of the government's responsibility. Uh, so that was one thing that set me off, set the firecrackers off in my head. Understandable. I have sat in the gallery too and it's a lot different to watching it on television. It is. Yeah. You, you feel confronted by the the raw human behaviour more. Mm. But the second thing was um, you mentioned I do reviews for Inside Story. I was reviewing a and a episode during the 2016 election And it was broadcast from Tamworth with uh, Barnaby Joyce and Tony Windsor, who were the local candidates. So it's a bit of a standoff between them. But it turned into this amazing people's forum on the regional economy. And one questioner after another came out with a story or a situation that they just couldn't handle. There were people trying to run a business just out of town who couldn't get internet access, so they just couldn't function properly. There were people with teenage children who couldn't get mental health services when the kids were really in a very bad way. There were people with um, severe medical conditions who couldn't get access to equipment and had to go to a major capital city. Um, There were concerns about drought and bushfires and the environment. Um, There were enormous numbers of businesses closing in the high street, Peel Street. Um, 40, I think, is the figure I was told over a two-year period. So there was a, a lack of flourishing in the local trading economy as well. And there came a point where 
Barnaby Joyce was trying to say, well, we've done this and we've done that. You know, we've put in a hospital here and a clinic there and a school there. And then he said, do you mind if I read his words? No, go for it. We have to try and always do things within our means to repay the debt that we have. And that, unfortunately, is the raw rule of economics, trying to do as much as we can to make sure we run a tight ship. Now, all those very obedient-minded good citizens in the audience seemed to drink that in. But it made me hopping mad because there are a number of things there. One is, why are we always in debt? Um, Why is there presumption that what makes us in debt is people having decent hospitals, libraries, schools, parks and local trading environments rather than billionaires trading masses of cattle overseas and ruining farmers by not paying them enough for their milk, Um, franchise businesses taking over the local high street so people go bust because they can't deal with the terms of the trade. Um, And then there's this metaphor of the tight ship. You know, what is this tight ship? I was thinking about that metaphor. The timbers are rotting. And um, it's creaking away on the high seas. And it keeps throwing people overboard. This is an economy that pushes people out. You know, lifters and leaners, people on welfare, push them out of the economy. And they're supposed to get a job, but there is no job they can get. Anyone who looks at employment offers on SEEK can see that most jobs are designed not to encourage people in, but to keep people out. They want a huge track record and detailed... um, you know, experience in the area. So it's a ship that throws people out, but nobody cares because the people who matter are sailing on ahead in their yachts. So this is a rotten system we're in. And I wanted to write about that and how we got there. Mm. It is a rotten system. And you were writing in that um, chapter that we're discussing the fact that you're wondering why can't we afford these things? Why is it a trade-off? And um, and why are we so poor? Um, and that's a kind of confronting question for a nation that actually has a lot of money and has been doing quite well for many, many, many years, decades, in fact, because of obviously a lot of things, but including the, the resources boom. So, I mean, everyone knows, and we discussed this on Budget Night, that, you know, it's a trade-off, but it's also a set of priorities. Like, the government is very, very clearly setting out what it thinks deserves money, deserves to be funded, and what doesn't. And it is a choice. It's always a choice, isn't it, for a government to decide how much they're going to spend or if they're even going to fund something. So... Is this something that you think isn't really front of mind or is is not challenged by the contemporary economic thought of the day? And, I mean, obviously a lot of economists, you know, are quite conservative, I would say, and their um, education would come from a very, very um, narrow, I guess, mainstream um, theorizing or th- theory base. So, I mean, we're coming from a position that's quite different, aren't we, in terms of this book and looking at things from a perspective of actually like you can afford it if you choose to afford it. You, it's more about the ideology and the principles of which you are going to underpin what you think is of value and of worth. Exactly. I mean, 
Economists one shouldn't bag because some of the best critical thinking, actually, about the state we're in is done by economists, like Harjun Chang or Thomas Piketty's a bit controversial, Yanis <laughs> um, Varoufakis. Um, yes, but they're, but they're kind of a little bit, they're all controversial in a way. They're my favourite economists, but they're not the, you know, mainstream. I mean, they are mainstream, I guess, but they're not like the hawkish economists, are they? But we have them here too. I mean, Ross Gittens, who's, he says he's not an economist, technically speaking, but our premier economics journalist um, is a wonderful um, critic of the, the present mm. economic system. Uh, Wayne Swan, former treasurer, is very sharp about the effects of neoliberalism. But to take up your other point about how these things are seen, I think that idea of lifters and leaners, it doesn't just apply to people. It also applies to the way you see the economy itself, that the lifters are supposed to be those who are making big wealth. You know, they own corporations, they expand their businesses, they make global trade happen, they're always kind of engaging in contracts and eating up other businesses and getting bigger. Um, and the leaners are, this phrase, the little people comes out, it's a phrase I hate, whoever made the people little, <laughs> um, are the leaners, they're looking for a job, they're looking for a house, they want something, and they mustn't get something for free. That's the great... Um, flagship notion of uh, neoliberalism. Everything must be paid for. But how did they get hold of this wealth, the people who have it? Um, as many people point out, you can't make wealth without drawing on things that belong to all of us. And to start with, that's the planet. So to get back to the bedrock of the book, I was tracing this history of an idea um, that is broadly known as the commons, which is the kind of land rights tradition in Europe and Britain and America. We know of the indigenous land rights tradition here. But there was a very strong land rights tradition um, which allowed people in general, you know, villagers, just ordinary people who scratched a living together by working in the fields or making a few goods or taking care of horses, they could supplement a very low income by keeping cattle or chickens on common land. They could also gather fuel. And in a bad winter where crops failed, they might be able to just keep themselves going by using the resources of this common land, which they also had to care for. But gradually over time, um, people of great wealth and landowners began to extend the boundaries of their property and to enclose the common land. And that actually led to starvation in a lot of cases. It caused really brutal hardship. And there are stories of people having to move from where their um, fathers and forefathers had lived for many generations because there wasn't the means of living for them. Um, and then you move to the other side of the equation, which is this economy that is all about competitive individualism and that hates commonality or collectivism is what Hayek called it. Um, 
and distrust the idea that people will actually work to do each other good and work for the common good. So you have to deal with the mistrust and you have to deal with the ideology that says we're always at our best when we admit that we're selfish and grasping and wanting to do each other down. Yeah, and you highlight the fact that, I mean, and a lot of people do as well. I'm thinking of um, Tim Jackson, Timothy Jackson from the UK, who says that, you know, innate in, in human nature actually is a collaborative, collective approach. And it's that in their mind is the instinctive default position of humanity. What What are your thoughts then on that? kind of understanding because you've outlined you know that what other people who are subscribed to that philosophy think is you know it's almost like the dog eat dog animalistic primitive um conception of of humanity but this is there is another conception that many people including yourself would ascribe to um in terms of what society is 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 and probably naturally might fall back on yeah it's interesting that if you start this debate on the economy in a really fundamental way, it becomes a debate about human nature. You know, are we fundamentally competitive individuals? Is it survival of the fittest? Or are we fundamentally um, a cooperative, collaborative people? And that interested me a great deal. I mean, I'm not myself an economist by training, um, but um, I'm more of a kind of cultural historian. So cultures are about certain visions of human nature which change over time and change in different contexts. Different traditions have different views about what is good human behaviour, what is a good person. But again, this bedrock, there is in most indigenous cultures, most cultures not interfered with by... Um, sophisticated economic games and industrial technologies. There is this um, belief in commonality and serving the common good. And I'm sorry if that's a bit of a cliché, but sometimes you need to take a cliché by the throat (laughs) and embrace it because it is... um, Well, take it by the throat and give it a good going over, but also embrace it because it's important to you. So you have to be critical as well as embracing But if I could tell a little story about how this came home to me some years ago, Um, I was doing a a rainforest walk in Queensland um, led by uh, an indigenous ranger from the local community, the Kukuyulanji people. Um, and deep in the heart of the rainforest, it's extraordinary terrain with these massive um, rocks, which apparently had once been on a seafloor. But there was a strangler fig, which Europeans sometimes call a cathedral fig because it puts its roots down, takes over the trees around it, and these roots then look like trunks, and there's an empty space in the middle, a kind of hollow space that is very high, so it's kind of a bit like a cathedral feeling. Um, and he explained this tree as, as he put it, keeping a bit of discipline in the forest, that when certain species of tree got a bit too numerous, it would put its roots down and take them over. So it was as if 
he was seeing the tree as the spirit of the forest and its ecology and an expression of the holistic nature of the forest as a kind of system, as a living system. Well, a few days later, we did another walk in the gorge, and this was very different. It was led by somebody who was a professional botanist and was wearing a Harvard T-shirt. And this was all about science, you know, lecture about the science of this plant and that plant. It was very interesting. She was a very good guide. But we also encountered a strangler fig on that walk. And she was saying, well, these are the kings of the forest. These are the winners who take over other species and kill them off and make themselves the giants. I thought, there you have it. These two sides of thinking about what it means to be a living being and what is natural to living beings. So this biologist's view gets mapped onto human nature in ways we all know about. But it's a very arid view, if you think about it. It, it has no dimension to it, and it's crashing the planet. It doesn't work. So I really think we have to take that view by the throat and... Um, refuse to accept it. It doesn't mm. mean it's easy to be a commonality. I mean, that image of the strangler fig is quite tough. Um, you can't have everything you want and do everything you want. And the common good becomes a kind of prevailing ethic that you have to serve. Uh, but it will do you good if you serve it. Mm. I'm speaking with Jane R. Goodall and we're talking about her book, The Politics of the Common Good. Um, Jane, you're really outlining – well, by the way, that's a great example. I feel like you've illustrated that so well. <laughs> it's going to be hard to, to top that. But in terms of like moving into um, the tenets of neoliberalism, which you've really highlighted – very well in terms of that that kind of way of looking at society. Um, you describe some of the aspects of that ideology, economic aspects, and the ones I was really interested in, one in particular is around economic growth and this idea that that is going to equalise society in a way, not completely, but to lift up those who are deeply impoverished by giving, you know, everyone the chance to reap the benefits of economic growth. And I'm all of that's in inverted commas because I don't really believe it. Um, and and a lot of people don't really question that, uh, that ideology and it has been the dominant ideology for ages. I honestly can't think of when it wasn't. And a lot, well, some people now are talking about degrowth or sustainable growth and this idea that really the economy can't keep growing because there's actually a finite amount of resources and we live on a finite planet that is you know suffering from climate change and many other disasters environmental disasters among you know just a few um, so in your mind do you think that you know, neoliberalism in in the way that it exists now has become 
like before it might have worked in say the 1980s when climate change wasn't front and center of people's minds and perhaps we weren't questioning the dominant ideologies because the internet you know wasn't proliferating so many different other ideas do you feel like neoliberalism has finally got to a point where people enough people are questioning those kind of really core principles that have just been going going unquestioned for decades and decades like that growth is good and you know more growth is going to help everyone one of the hard things to get your mind around is that people are still voting for it um they're still voting for tax cuts for corporations. Now, that's what causes this tight ship to have rotting planks and to be throwing people overboard and resources to be so scarce in a country town like Tamworth, which was an amazing area of prosperity. Um, But Barnaby Joyce got back in at that election. Now, this is the real puzzle. Um, How this particular ideology of neoliberalism has managed to get into the heads of people so that they feel their very survival depends on them continuing to serve something that's cheating them. And that's actually what's happening. So we've all heard of the trickle-down myth. It is a myth. There's more data than you could load on the Titanic to tell you that it is completely without foundation. Um, One of the things I've felt thinking about it again recently, you know, when we had our recent election result, is that it works by making people afraid that they will be pushed out of the economy because there's nothing to save you. You're a pariah. You're a leaner. You're a wastrel. Mm. You want something for nothing. You won't get a job. Well, try and get a job and good luck to you once you're pushed out of the economy. Um, but because people are, they vote out of fear and they're in a situation where the holders of wealth are so big and so powerful and in a way so invisible to them. Who's met Gina Reinhardt, you know? Who knows who owns those properties up on the Murray-Darling where they've walled in vast reservoirs to cordon off the water. Mm. Who knows about that? You can't even see what's going on behind those walls. Um, And if you're told, look, your destiny is in the hands of these people and they need to give you a job, you know, you don't question that somehow. You will do anything to get that job, you know, whether it's in a Dani coal mining. But if you think about it for a moment, just stop and do the logic. Why would they give you a job? Why does corporate growth supposed to go with growth and employment? Where's the evidence for that? Corporate growth is about profit and employment is a cost. They don't want to employ people. They want to cut jobs. They want to cut wages. They want to cut employees. They want to replace humans with technologies wherever they can. They want to replace local humans with cheaper humans elsewhere on the planet who have less protections. That's what's going on there. Now, why people in regional electorates would vote for that flummoxes me. And all I can think is that the brainwashing has gone on for so long and it's attached to such a high level of anxiety now. And then the fear campaigns come up 
even for the most moderate alternative. And Labour were offering, a lot of people thought, too moderate an alternative um, compared to, say, Bernie Sanders in, in America or Jeremy Corbyn in the UK. Um, but it's going to crash. It's crashing very slowly and there's a nasty end game. Uh, there was a conference a few years ago in York um, about zombie neoliberalism and this idea it's the kind of un- it's the walking dead it's already died on us mm. but we are so paralyzed in our thinking we're not we're not uh, taking that on yeah i it's really interesting isn't it it is kind of it, well it's a dead ideology in the sense that it's not of use it's not of value to us right now and you know you talk about the anxiety that people have and that's possibly why they're clinging you know to deal life for this kind of ideology that doesn't work for us i'm wondering whether you know that anxiety about people's jobs is fed like it's it's almost it's a really bad cycle like a cycle of like neoliberalism creates anxiety by creating scarcity of jobs and creating um insecure work which makes workers feel insecure and anxious about their employment and so then they cling on to it even more and it kind of just seems like it's quite a difficult cycle that to disrupt when you think about you know the fact that it's playing on something that's really essential to someone's identity but also their ability to live and survive so in your mind how do you disrupt that anxiety that it feeds and you know creates and and just I guess um perpetuates That's a big question, and I think you have to work at a number of levels. And one of the kind of case studies I looked at for the book was Wangaratta, which has had um, an independent member of parliament. They've just re-voted an independent in, Helen Haynes. And I had a very nice conversation with Cathy McGowan about... um, the economy, the local economy of Indi. Now, Cathy McGowan's no lefty, you know. Um, She's a businesswoman. And I was not in any way wanting to write anti-business. You know, it's one of the scare things. Anything that's not neoliberal must be anti-business. It's they who crash the businesses. It's the franchises who crash the small business owners. um, But local businesses is a really the vital heart of most local communities. It connects them up with other areas of the country and um, diversifies life in the town. But if you maybe just think of a country town in the 1950s or 60s, life isn't ideal. It's pretty boring and staid. You know, you need a bit of pepping up. Um, But from an economic point of view, you might have got a job at a local store Um, say, a hardware store or a local businesses that made something. Um, There was a big cloth-making business in Wangaratta. Um, It was also one of the first places to have um, a computer business. Um, That might be owned by a local person. They might be doing quite well. What do they want to do with their money? Maybe buy a bigger house in the town. Maybe they'll put in a pool, send their kids to private school. But that's the level of wealth you're talking about from the wealth makers of the town. Earlier in the century, they'd have built some gorgeous stone building on the main high street, which was a cause of civic pride, you know, the stores or, or a bank building. Um, 
and they'd have employed a lot of local people. Now, when those businesses are put into malls, which are owned by massive corporations, they don't want to build a beautiful building in the high street. Um, They want to leach all the trade out of the high street and into the mall, where they micro-surveil all the tenant businesses on how they run themselves, how their profits are going. Um, You know, there are cameras to control the flow of people through the space. This is not really public space. This is an enclosure um, of what used to be commons, common ground. Um, And if you're looking for employment there, it's always being shaved back. You know, they're not taking on lots of extra people in these shops. They're cutting staff back. There'll be just one person in charge, very stressed on a Sunday afternoon after a long week, you know. Um, So this is a very minimal model of employment that comes with growth. Mm. We need to unshackle this jobs and growth rubbish. Growth doesn't create jobs. Too much growth cuts jobs. That's how you grow. Yeah. Jane, we're going to have to finish it there, but (laughs) it's been really fascinating to speak with you. And I feel like we've just started the conversation, which I hope people can keep doing mentally by reading your book, which is called The Politics of the Common Good, uh, Dispossession in Australia. And I think it's a really easy, not an easy read, but a very engaging, accessible read. And so hopefully people do um, do this because I know, and as I've said on this show many times, economics can sometimes be scary and complicated and but it's actually really important because it's the foundations of our political system essentially and it's how politicians talk about our everyday lives so thank you so much for coming in and congratulations on this wonderful piece of uh, scholarship and thought look thank you so much for the conversation and um there is actually an event at readings tonight in the hawthorne store um i'm having a conversation with tim dunlop who's a fantastic writer you might know his book the future of everything and we're going to talk these big issues and hopefully draw in the people who come to discuss them that sounds amazing it's on glen ferry road and it's right near the cinema lido and i believe it's a a supermarket on the corner so do head on and I think it's at 6.30 that's correct excellent so readings Hawthorne tonight at 6.30 so that you can continue the conversation in person with Jane and you could ask her a question I'm sure um, and to see her speaking with Tim Dunlop this is a podcast from Triple R an independent media organization in Melbourne Australia to find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows podcasts articles videos and interviews head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. You are tuned in to 3RRR FM in Melbourne. I'm Amy Mullins and this show is called Uncommon Sense and it is great to be with you this Tuesday morning. We are talking a lot about politics and uh, we've just been talking about the common good. This is certainly very apt for my next guest who has been fighting for the common good but particularly for the environment of which we all rely on um, and not just rely on but you know appreciate and love deeply. Um, I'm going to be speaking with in just a few seconds Bob Brown who you I'm sure would know was elected to the Senate in 1996. He was also uh, an MP in the Tasmanian State Parliament for 10 years 
years. So he's been really advocating um, on behalf of society, but also for the environment for decades and decades of his life. And he was uh, the parliamentary leader of the Australian Greens also for a number of years. And so uh, Bob Brown, he now has a wonderful foundation called the Bob Brown Foundation, uh, which you can find out everything about by looking at bobbrown.org.au and he's the founder of that foundation and we're going to now speak with Bob who's going to be appearing tonight um, as part of a panel event about climate change for La Trobe University. It's called Climate Change in Australia, Where To Now? It is on uh, Tuesday the 17th, so tonight at 6.15pm. I believe it's sold out, um, but you can actually live stream it. So do head on to the La Trobe University website to look for the live stream link. Um, and Bob Brown will be joined by David Ritter, Amanda Cahill and Maisha Moyne and it's going to be uh, moderated by Professor Katie Holmes. So without further ado, I welcome Bob Brown who's joining us on the phone to the show. Hi there, Bob. Good morning, Amy. Good morning and thank you so much for joining us and for giving us your time. Pleasure to be here. Um, there's so many subjects and topics um, that are important to the issue of climate change and it's great that it has finally you know, gathered more and more momentum given that we're now going to see a global climate strike this Friday um, and it seems like there's a lot more um, visible activism around climate change in the last couple of years. But this is something that you yourself personally have been engaged in for I'm sure, a lot longer. In terms of your um, experience as an environmentalist and as a politician, previous politician, um, when did climate change come onto your radar? Um, because presumably it was not necessarily mainstream in our political debate at that time. Uh, in the 1970s and 80s, it was looming. In fact, uh, late 1960s, Australian scientists started talking about it. Although it goes right back to the mid-1800s when a woman scientist in the United States, and she had to, had to get a male to present it to the American Academy of Sciences because women weren't allowed those days, warned that carbon going into the atmosphere would, wa- would heat us up. How right she was. And here we are now, not uh, facing climate change, but in the middle of the greatest threat that uh, humanity in all its hundreds of millions of years on this planet has has had. It's self-made. Uh, we know the last great catastrophe for life on Earth was when uh, an asteroid ploughed into the planet 65 million years ago, and that was the end of the dinosaurs, plus much else. But this time, uh, we know the cause is us, and we can turn ourselves around, unlike that asteroid. But there's uh, little sign of that, except there's hope in young people. And and, uh, Friday's climate strike by the school children uh, and youth of Australia, and they're asking us all to go, and I'll certainly be at the one in Hobart, is is going to be a global demonstration of the need for action, um, which is so lacking in the Australian government, one of the worst in the world, but in governments right around the planet. 
Yes, it's so uh, inspiring and exciting to see young people, especially um, young people from primary school age, engaging, not just talking about it, but actually going out onto the street and protesting. And I know that, you know, when I grew up and was young, um, I certainly engaged in a few protests myself, but it was a very, very rare thing for children to protest and galvanise behind an issue. Um, Is this something that you have seen before this in terms of, um, you know, people who are not even yet teenagers? Well, there's always been a a youthful component to concern about the environment, but it's, it's very much heightened now. And there's a choice here, Amy, for all of us, no matter what age we are, that is get depressed by what's going on in the world or by the lack of action, or get active. And it's much better to get active. You know, I spent a, a, a decade depressed when I was a youngster about what was then the Cold War and the threat to the planet from nuclear weapons, one that hasn't gone away, by the way. But I found it was much better to get active and, and became, uh, firstly, I, I was lucky enough to become a young doctor and go to Tasmania, but became active in the environment movement. And um, that's been... Uh, are really, you know, the beauty of this planet. We're part of it. It can do without us, but we can't do without it. And it gives us everything we've got. And yet uh, humankind is uh, exploiting it beyond its ability. So that last year, for example, on the roughest figures that are available, 150,000 people died because of climate change, because of the heating planet. That's so far. Just uh, a few years back, I was saying it was 20,000, and it's going, the predictions are very dire. So that a, um, a, a child, a, a very young, pre, a preschooler now, by the time they get to my age, in Melbourne, where there's eight, average eight days over 35 degrees centigrade uh, heating, you know, the hottest days now, is going to be facing up to 30 days over 35 degrees centigrade in her or his uh, by the time she or he gets to my age. Now, that's pretty... And, and a proportionate extra number of days over 40 and so on. It's, uh, it's becoming... Um, it, it, it's going to make beautiful, livable places like Melbourne um, much more unlivable and worse as you, you get into hotter and drier climes. And we're looking at at a drought which um, estimates are putting uh, in in southeast Australia and part of the southwest now costing $12.5 billion. But you rarely see on television at night, whether it's commercial or ABC or SBS, that link to burning of coal. But it is directly worse, worsened by the linking, by the burning of coal. And yet we've got governments at state and federal level who say we our answer our response uh in uh, to this climate change threatening our economy our lifestyle our, our well-being and those of our kids is to burn more coal and uh open up more gas wells and to get more oil it's daft and um you know, the the greatest contribution our Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, has made to this is said he's going to pray for rain. <laughs> well, he said that some months ago, and the, the answer has been worse drought. And the forecasts are no great rain until at least winter next year. And, you know, uh, cities the size of Dubbo, 34,000 people in western New South Wales, 
facing no water by November. They're going to have to cart water in. Um, unprecedented due to climate change, due to burning coal. Uh, and our greatest hope is not at the Prime Minister's office. It's with ki uh, kids in primary schools. They, they've got more common sense than our cabinet in Australia in 2019. Exactly. I couldn't agree more, Bob, and you've put it in a very, very clear way, the, the choice that we have and the fact that the debate we're having is ideological rather than rational and pragmatic. And I know that just recently we've seen really, really disastrous fires happening, particularly in Queensland. And, of course, before that we've seen horrible flooding as well. So we're seeing so many more extreme weather events and predictions of uh, one of the worst bushfire seasons in recent memory um, and we've seen Queensland in particular be the centre of attention and particularly the centre of activism for um, preventing new coal mines because of the Adani Carmichael coal mine. And I know that you've been very involved in that campaign to stop Adani from uh, proceeding. In terms of that connection, given that we've just only recently in the, in the last few weeks seen the devastating impacts of um, drought and bushfire and, you know, a, a looming summer um, which is just around the corner, how do you understand or... Um, put into context the fact that we see all these extreme weather events and horrible things occurring right now, not even into the future, and yet there's not really um, as much pushback as one would expect from those who are living in states like Queensland uh, against new coal mines being built. Well, 90% of Australians in May this year voted for more coal mines. Indeed. How, but how, how does one explain that kind of disconnect? Um, well, you know, human beings have got a denial mechanism and when it's uncomfortable news, even if it requires action for the individual or the collective's own well-being into the future, very much uh, tend to shut the mind. You know, I'm reminded of 1937 when um, British Prime Minister Chamberlain flew over and met Hitler and signed a Peace in Our Time declaration and flew back to London and announced Peace in Our Time and the church bells ring, rang and a million people turned out and everybody was skipping in the street and 18 months later they were at war. Uh, because uh, the wish that everything would be OK overcame the rational look at what a brute they were dealing with in Hitler. And we've now got the situation where the wish, wish that everything will be OK is overcoming the rational look at this brute of self-induced climate change. And big money has bought democracy. And I'm afraid uh, I'm talking to an exception here now, Amy, but the media, uh, and particularly the mainstream media, and, and in particular the Murdoch media, has a huge responsibility for touting climate denialism or, uh, you know, just watching on... Um, uh, public TV the other night, a story about the bushfires, then there was one about the drought, and then there was another one uh, related to the impact of climate change, and nowhere was climate change, global heating or coal burning mentioned, because they all uh, don't want to get calls from the big corporations or angry politicians saying you shouldn't be mentioning climate change. So, But really, again... Uh, here Friday, it, we've got this great seminar La Trobe University is putting on tonight. Robert Mann, 
there rang me about this and then he's got the other panellists together and I was glad to hear you just say that it's been booked out. People are concerned about it. But, you know, uh, we've got to convert, as the schoolies are doing, that, con- that concern into action. Mm-hmm. And I'm afraid the response from state and federal governments in this country is to bring in more draconian laws to prevent peaceful protest. And that's a real worry. And Labor and Liberal and National Party and independents like Pauline Hanson are getting together to bring those laws in uh, right now, and there's very little debate about it. We saw another one go through the federal parliament just uh, a couple of days ago. So um, uh, it really is up to us all to be much more active, bringing our politicians, going to events like Friday's climate strike and giving what we can to uh, social and environmental organisations which are active. That's the key to it. See that they're active. Uh, Not just the brochures coming out, but they're really taking action to avert the climate, uh, the worst of the climate disaster which we're already uh, having upon us. Indeed, I think people underestimate the power of contacting one's local politician or senator and telling them that you're concerned or upset about a certain policy that's been proposed or voted on because, you know, if politicians don't get that message loud and clear, they will think they can get away with getting these uh, laws through by stealth because, I mean, you know, if you don't see that public pushback, pushback, they'll think they can keep um, getting away with things. In terms of uh, Tasmania, I know the protest laws there are certainly contentious and you've been focusing on those yourself Um, and there are a number of reasons to be protesting in Tasmania of which you've been really leading the charge. Um, Could you share with us some of the you know concerns that you currently have in Tasmania around the environment? Well the the government there brought in draconian uh, anti-protest laws so if you stood in front of a a chainsaw headed toward a 500 year old tree full of wildlife you faced up to four years in jail. And uh, that was a situation that arose in a little forest called Laponia in northern uh, Tasmania uh, a couple of years back. And uh, we, uh, I and some locals were arrested there. Um, We took the case to the High Court and the High Court ruled that these laws were cut right across our democratic right to peaceful protest. But... um, more, the logging continues, and um, yes, our foundation uh, has made a big stand in the Tarkine Rainforest, which is Australia's biggest temperate rainforest. It's 100,000 hectares. It's the nearest great rainforest to Victoria, although there's pockets of wonderful rainforest uh, in, in amongst the equally threatened great um eucalypt forests of the Victorian Highlands Mm. where rare and endangered species are being uh, smashed down now by the Andrews government with the Commonwealth government backing it at expense, you know, taxpayers in Melbourne are paying to have that happen but keep voting for these these, uh, governments which are um, destroying what's so important as an heirloom to be handed on to future generations. In Tassie, we've got We've just had the swift parrots arrive back um, some uh, where uh, I live on the south coast of Tasmania and they come from Victoria. They come up here for winter 
and uh, they've just arrived back down there and there's just a thousand pairs left. There used to be great flocks of these right from Sydney through Mildura to to Adelaide. Um, now they're down to a thousand pairs and guess what? The Tasmanian government, backed by the federal government, is logging nesting sites of these birds uh, which are now internationally recognised as critically endangered. So I have to wonder, what do we do about that? Um, the populace keeps putting tax cuts and uh, debate and chatter about uh, how to get more money in one of the wealthiest countries ever on the face of the planet. As, our, as, our, as we've got in Australia, an estimated third of our birds will go to extinction this century and worldwide scientific estimates are three quarters of the world's birds now these are descendants they're the one descendants of the dinosaurs that made it through that cataclysm 65 million years ago birds are direct descendants from the dinosaurs and yet three quarters of the current world species of birds will be extinct by the end of next century at the rate we're going and um of course, destroy if you if you haven't got trees, you haven't got nesting sites, you haven't got nesting sites, you haven't got birds. So I say to myself, well, they're bringing in these laws that are going to send you to jail, but isn't it your duty, Bob Brown, to go and stand in front of those chainsaws regardless? Won't the next generation be angry that we didn't step off the footpath, we didn't get out of our armchair, we didn't go and make a stand against this breaching of nature's laws, which is seeing our planet being destroyed in front of our eyes by greedy uh, materialists who have bought governments lock, stock and barrel in 2019. Absolutely, they will, I think. And it's real, there is no excuse to not um, stand in front of those trees, I agree. And uh, we've certainly covered the Central Highlands on this show a number of times, and it's absolutely disturbing, especially given the regional forest agreements are currently being uh, updated and redrafted as we speak. So it's um, going to be concerning to see what happens out of that. Um, Bob, I know you have to leave. I just wanted to finish on um, the discussion around wind farms in Tasmania. And I know you've copped a lot of flack from the Murdoch press around this issue, which just seems absolutely ridiculous to me, given the the fact that you should be able to have a nuanced position um, on renewable energy. In terms of the birds that you've just been talking about, these wind turbines that um, are proposed to be put in place in Tasmania are going to threaten and endanger um, a number of very important species of birds. Where are we up to in that fight? Well, currently they haven't opened it yet for public submissions, but they're moving ahead with getting approval at state and federal level. This is a big wind farm on uh, an island just to the northwest of Tasmania's mainland, but right in the path of the migrating birds, like that swift parrot that I was just talking about, but many others uh, that migrate between both the mainland and Tasmania. But a lot that come from Siberia and Alaska each year um, through, and they expect off that very island are large mudflats where they get their feed and they recover incredibly important to them and uh, the Aboriginal community is now alarmed too that there's a million mutton birds, shearwaters, fly back to that vicinity each year and they come from the Northern Hemisphere and they're going to be confronted by hundreds of these towers with spinning um, 
ailerons, the wings of the wind turrets that are 270 metres high. Now, that would stand out amongst the skyscrapers of Melbourne. And the birds simply get uh, smashed down by them. And there's 80 wind farms in Australia. I know there's problems with this very same phenomenon here in Victoria. And where is the government, state or federal, which has said, here is the limits for renewable energy? Like here is the renew- mm. limits for coal mines. Here are the limits for every. Here's the limits to, to um, uh, driving. You've got to have rules for it. But uh, so far, it's been open slatter, and it's a time time it was brought into order. And the Robins Island wind farm in Tasmania is a step too far. Absolutely, um, Bob. I know you have a new book coming out that people should look out for called Planet Earth. Um, and yeah, I hope that people do get to watch the event tonight, whether they're there in person or live streaming it, because I think you've really brought it home just how urgent and important this issue is and should be to all of us. And um, thank you so much for the constant advocacy and activism that you engage in on behalf of the environment. Thanks, Amy. It's great to be with you. I've been speaking with the wonderful Bob Brown, who is a former senator in the Australian Parliament, former leader of the Australian Greens, and a lifelong activist and protector of the environment. And um, he really really probably needs no introduction. And um, I hope you do get along to his event tonight, which is at La Trobe University. Um, It's hosted or convened by Robert Mann, as Bob mentioned there. And you can watch the live stream on the La Trobe University event page. Um, It starts tonight, 6.15pm until 8.30pm. It's going to be, I believe, at the NG um, in the Cleminger Auditorium and it also features Dr David Ritter who is um, a very well-known environmentalist and also Amanda Cahill and Maisha Moyne and so um, yeah, it's about climate change and it's a debate really about Australia and where do we go from here. So I hope you do get along to that and we can post the link up to the event page. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. You are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with Amy Mullins. I now have with me in the studio the wonderful Gabrielle Jackson and she's here to talk about a book which is called Pain and Prejudice and uh, the subtitle is A Call to Arms for Women and Their Bodies. Um, It definitely is a call to arms and I'm really excited that you can partake in this call to arms with us. Um, We're going to be talking about women's pain and bodies and health, so it's all going to be happening in this last hour of Uncommon Sense. Hi there, Gabrielle. Hi, Amy. Hi. And in your day job, you are a a news editor at The Guardian Australia, which must be a pretty demanding yeah, job. Yeah, it is. It's quite <laughs> hectic, actually, but yeah. I love it, luckily. Yeah, and, um, and I mean, this book that you've written 
is not only from a research scientific perspective, but you have also a very much a, a personal experience which informs this book, um, which is also really important and interesting and I know would be valuable to a lot of women listening who may not understand some of the illnesses that have only recently become you know, well-known or mm. even just referenced or discussed in the media. Yeah. Um, and I'm thinking in particular of endometriosis, which is, you know, really getting traction now in terms of the, the prominence that it's mm. had. And finally, an action plan from our health minister um, to start the ball rolling. Um, but how did you get to this point where you decided, I need to write a book about women's health and women's pain and how the medical system treats women um, and particularly, I guess, downplays and almost gaslights women, I would say. Yeah, exactly. That's what that's what happens. That's a really good way to put it. Um, so, you know, I think my story is really common um, and very typical. I had, you know, started with terrible period pain in my teens. You know, I was the girl in sick bay every month, my mum picking me up month after month. And um, I would have these incredible bouts of fatigue I was uh, diagnosed as a teenager with chronic fatigue syndrome and then um, you know that didn't really you know got better for a little while but this ongoing pain happened in in my early 20s I insisted my GP I had a female GP she just kept telling me yep some women have bad periods that's life and then I you know I just looked around and I didn't see anyone I knew suffering like I did so I insisted on a um, referral to a gynaecologist and I was really lucky that he was a, a gynaecologist who had a bit of a specialty in endometriosis and he was a very caring doctor. He was very um, lovely, explained it all to me, had a surgery and felt a lot better for a long time and kind of sent me on my way. But I had all these other problems in my life like back pain. I had a skiing accident when I was 19 so I put the back pain and leg pain and hip pain down to that and you know I had bowel problems and kind of headaches and nausea and all these other things and I just came to kind of think of myself as a hypochondriac. I was just kind of a weak person, a bit flakier than my friends and you kind of internalise that because you you try to prove yourself over and over again. I can be strong. I just have to work a bit harder. I just have to be stronger. And then, um, you know, my and I was getting much worse and I went to this conference put on by um, a, an advocacy group called Endoactive and that's a woman, Sylvia Friedman and her mother, Leslie, who just decided, you know, Sylvia got a diagnose, uh, diagnosis of endo and they were like, it's just not enough known, this is not right. So they put on a conference, they got Australia's best specialists into a room and invited patients along. And that was the first time that day I sat in that auditorium and listened to all these experts talk and then I realised that all these symptoms were all really common symptoms of endometriosis. They weren't a hundred different things. I wasn't just weak. I wasn't a hypochondria. I hadn't been making up all these things. Mm. And that is when I just thought, you know, I can't tell you how much I cried. I just sat in that room all day and I cried. I caught the bus home and I was trying to ring my mum and tell her and I couldn't even talk. I just cried. And I said, well, you know, I felt like a pretty knowledgeable person and if there's all this that I don't know, mm. then how many other people don't know? And that's kind of what spurred me on. 
Yeah, and I know that a lot of people who are unwell for a long time but haven't been given a diagnosis or, like in your case, didn't put all the symptoms together and Mm. think they could all be, you know, caused by one or two things, um, that when they finally find out what's really wrong, they do cry and have this huge release of emotion and, you know, almost relief Mm. to know that it's real and there's something that is actually biologically causing it because of this constant, you know, social pressure and questioning and anxiety that women particularly get put under um, of like, but, you know, you complain a lot. Why are you in pain? Why are you telling us you're in pain? Mm. You know, keep it to yourself. Just be tough. Yeah. Um, And I just, you know, it's hard to imagine. Well, the thing about it is that no one likes the person who keeps complaining constantly. Mm. So I think women do internalise. I know I did. I didn't. If I complained every time I was in pain, I'd have no friends, you know. So you <laughs> yes. do you do keep it to yourself. You don't want to be a drag or the I mean, the person who's, you know, the whinger. And um, so it is an incredibly emotional experience to realise that these things were real and and that you're not as weak and hopeless as you thought you were. That's a that's a hard thing to deal with. Mm. Um I let's get into some of the elements of your book which mm-hmm. you know we already have been discussing but I want to get into some of the nitty-gritty. Let's start with where you start out which I think is fantastic to talk about women's bodies mm-hmm. and our anatomy and how amazing they are and also how very little many women know about our own bodies. Yeah, I was totally shocked at how little I knew about my body, to be honest. Um, And that's why I thought it was really important to start there so we can understand how our body functions and how it works and how when things aren't normal, that can be a sign that something's not going right. Um, But one of the most amazing things that I discovered when I was looking into, you know, all the functions of the female reproductive system is that, you know, there's this idea that, um, you know, the sperm is the go-getter and it Mm. swims along and it pierces the egg and that's the fertilisation process. When we've Scientists have actually known for a really long time that that's not really how the fertilisation process works at all. The egg has a really active role in capturing the the sperm. The sperm is actually quite slippery and couldn't couldn't do anything without the egg's activation and capturing of the sperm. And you know, and that this really told me a story about how science has has created this story of a passive female and an active male and they've written it in at the cell line when it's not even true and when you write it in that cell line it's almost like it's natural and therefore has to be that way in the human world and that was never true Mm. (laughs) so you know all the way through medicine you know back to the beginnings of medicine I kept finding these assumptions which were never really based in fact Oh, there are so many. It's yeah. like kind of disturbing. There's a whole chapter on hysteria, which mm. is, you know, people would say, and it is a very gendered insult, I'll stop being hysterical. Oh, absolutely. Just, you know, you're being emotional. Um, and this this kind of idea that women are irrational, ruled by their emotions. Their, or their hormones. Yeah, or exactly mm. their hormones. They're unstable, they're moody. Um, there's so many stereotypes that are completely unfounded and have been used to keep women down, essentially, Mm. to keep them in their place, to stay in the home and to not be, um, I guess, 
at the same level of participation in society as men. And of course, we have like changed a lot from the 19th century in that regard, but we still have this um, hangover of systemic sexism that exists in the medical profession, but also even just like in our own sex education and in our own, um, yeah, like discussions of women's health with each other. Yeah, As exactly. women to women even when we talk about our issues or women to doctor, GP, mm-hmm. your first point at port of call when you have an issue. Um, so you kind of go through some of the functions and parts of an female anatomy that are amazing um, and one that many people know about or have heard about which is the clitoris many people may not realize how phenomenal it is and also that it's not one tiny point mm. that it's a huge um you know organ, that, organ yeah, yeah that exactly. sits below the surface Literally. yeah even the oxford dictionary still defines it as a you know pea-sized organ that sticks out on the outside that's only what you can see the majority of the organ is actually beneath the surface but that wasn't until the 90s that and even an MRI was done of done on the clitoris and that we could see it and it was actually an Australian female urologist who was the one who discovered um, the full you know anatomy of Mm. the clitoris even though it had been known in the 18th century and then conveniently forgotten um this female and and so for the first time surgery on uh, women and women with female sex organs anatomy was able to be done while trying to maintain sexual function something that's always been done on men but something that was never considered for women so women would ha- would lose their sexual function because their you know the clitoris just wasn't considered in surgery and it would be yeah. you know the nerve endings would be you know lost and whatnot but you know that's changing and that's really a recent change yeah it's scary really isn't it that it's it's been unintentionally damaged through mm. surgery but also still today intentionally mm. mutilated well, that's the thing yes yeah. and that's just um you know there's all these methods of control of women and i think that's a really interesting aspect of this because on the one hand you know society tries to tell us that women are naturally chaste and passive and men are the ones that you know go get them but then they've used all these methods of control to stop her cheating Mm. or you know having sexual freedom so it can't be both of those things and I think female genital mutilation is the most extreme version of that where you know they literally cut off her clitoris so she can't enjoy sex because then she won't want to have sex with other people other than her husband not to mention why would she if it's that painful yeah. want to have sex, sex at all at all yeah. Yeah, with anyone um how terrible it is horrible um and it's really amazing to think that there are 8000 nerve endings um in the tip of the clitoris mm. That's like it's a really huge. sensitive organ, yeah. yeah. And even the labia have nerve endings too. And now we see this, you know, popularity of labiaplasty happening because mm. this is another thing: girls aren't taught in in their sex education that the labia grows in puberty and that it changes shape and you they will start changing shape and one will grow longer than the other. And so when that starts happening, and the only images you're ever exposed to are porn then of course people get worried and think they're not normal but Mm. a lot of women lose sexual function well some women lose sexual function in that procedure and that's something that's often not explained to them indeed Um, and it has like you just 
quote the statistics about the fact that it's like massively increased in the last 10 to 15 mm. years in terms of elective cosmetic surgery in that region. Yes, and I think that um, an Australian study showed that um, th- more than half of GPs had been asked about it and uh, and sometimes I think the third of the people asking were under 18 and so they haven't even finished developing yet. That's really risky and mm. really scary that um, people are so worried about being normal quote unquote town you know in their private anatomy Mm. when they're obviously not being exposed to normal anatomy at all and or at school or in their sex education Mm. to know that there's actually no no such thing as a normal vulva exactly and one thing that um uh, was interesting to me when I was thinking about this issue and we're talking about what's normal and also like the social expectations that are put on women Mm. in particular around sex. A lot of women, um, and you mentioned their pornography, would feel a lot of pressure to um, wax completely. And I didn't even realise apparently that pubic hair has a really important health role in preventing infection of a range of kinds. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, it's just it, it's it's crazy how how we can put ourselves at risk for the benefit of some kind of societal norm or what's considered beauty. Yeah, it's really distressing, and I think it's something we need to think about you know, really carefully when we're asking women to suffer in order to be good or beautiful Mm. or attractive in some way. And pay a lot of money, presumably. Well, exactly. And look, the amount of money we pay on all these, you know, makeup and beauty and waxing and all the other things and the attention that takes, that takes a lot of our time, time, a Mm. lot of our brain processing that could be better used, you know, making the world a better place or, you know, reading or yeah (laughs) so it's a lot of our time and our money taken Mm. away from the pursuits of men what they are doing and for what benefit actually just for a disbenefit to make up a word there (laughs) (laughs) that's so good um we're good I'm I'm also really interested in this fact that you raise that women have to spend so much money even just to menstruate like and or have a withdrawal bleed if they're using contraception and have a withdrawal bleed. Like women have to spend a minimum amount of money on essential items Mm. that are just something you need to make sure that you don't have massive health issues. Yeah, because, you know, um, poor hygiene during menstruation can cause a lot of issues Um, and that's proven. I think, you know, in India the statistic is something like 70% of... um, you know, female illnesses are caused by some kind of poor menstruation hygiene. Uh, it's, you know, this is healthy. This is part of being a healthy individual. It's not, mm. you know, a luxury product. It's not something that we want to do. It's just a basic fact of being a healthy woman or person with female sex organs. You know, be a basic human right. Mm. Um, let's talk a bit about women's health, but not just, as you say, the reproductive system. Of course, that is a defining difference between a female sex and a male sex is usually there is a, you know, um, the male reproductive system and a penis and women having a vulva, which is the outside, we should say, mm. so that people know, because that is one of your other points in the book, is that people often don't realise that 
the vagina is inside, mm. it's interior, and the vulva is the outside. Yeah, that's right. Um, and and if you know, vagina has become like a social phrase to in, to capture all of it, and that's fine. Mm. But as long as we know the anatomical terms are different, and and we're taught that they're different, so when we do go to our doctor and start talking, that we can we can tell them exactly what's feeling different or what's feeling a bit weird or where the lump is. Mm. You know, I, I talked to a um, um, someone in the UK and there was a doctor who had like a full 10-minute consultation with a patient who was talking about her waterworks. So the doctor thought she was talking about her bladder and explaining all these issues and it was only like at the end of the consultation she realised she was actually bringing up, trying to raise gynaecological issues but she didn't know any terms and was too embarrassed to mm. say them and you know this is this could be killing us you know this embarrassment this shame is um you know what purpose does it serve it only serves a purpose to keep women sick and you know in poor health mm. you talk about painful periods and that is something which i think a lot of women would be putting up with without realising perhaps it disrupts their life if it stops them from going to work or, you know, from engaging in their day-to-day activities. Exactly. certainly is a concern. But women's pain, as you highlight in this book, is often dismissed or not taken seriously. There's another area where women's pain isn't taken seriously, which is in sex. And it's quite a common uh, thing for Mm. women to experience a range of... um, issues relating to pain during sex, including things like vaginismus, Mm -hmm. which is around uh, muscles tightening and contracting, and um, that causes a lot of pain. There's dyspareunia. There's a whole range of things that um, many women would think, oh, well, I'll just, you know, have to put up with it. Maybe that's just how it is. Mm. Yeah, studies show that about a third of women have painful vaginal sex and and just over 70% have find sex painful. And a lot of them just think they have to put up with it and they don't. The, the good news is there's a lot of really good help for, for um, sexual pain now. Mm. Um, a lot of sexologists and a lot of women's health physiotherapists can really, really help. And, you know, um, I spoke to this amazing woman, Emmalina, and she's a sex researcher, and she says, you know, Pain in sex, unless it's kind of raunchy and you want it, a bit of slapping or something like that, Mm. is never normal and you should Mm. always investigate that and there's a lot of help. Um, So she says, yeah, the only two things that are bad, I think, are like non-consent and pain, you know, everything else, you know, go for it. (laughs) (laughs) It's really, yeah, it's something that women I don't think and also men probably don't talk about that often. No, of course, because um, men also feel shame around this stuff. And I should also say I talk about a lot of chronic pain conditions Mm. that mainly affect women, but the men who have those conditions, you know, fare really poorly too and often their very masculinity is questioned when they go in with fibromyalgia or chronic fatigue syndrome Mm. or men get pelvic pain too at much lower rate but they they do really poorly and that's not good for them either you know that's why studying everyone can benefit everyone you know rather than just the average whatever that is man but um yeah so i think that um you know, when it comes to sex, there's this, this social stereotypes that men want sex all the time, mm. they're ready for it. And that's not, you know, it's not a male women thing. Humans have a full range of desire and 
um, again, Emily Nagoski told me that she wrote about um, desire in the New York Times and she wrote about how for many women it's not just spontaneous. When you're relaxed and feeling good and and then something you feel something quite pleasurable, that's when desire comes. And she said she actually heard from more men than women after writing that because they said, this is how I experienced desire and I've always thought there's something wrong with me because, you know, I've always been told that men should just be ready for sex anytime, anywhere. Mm. And that's just not the reality. So, um, you know, I think it's really when we talk about women's different experiences of sexual pleasure and desire, we also open up a space where men who don't fit that cultural stereotype can talk their different experiences as well. Mm, Exactly. And, you know, Certainly, I think it's probably not discussed or acknowledged that, you know, women would have fluctuating sex drives across their cycle, but also across their life. Exactly. I mean, stress is not, is going to dent anyone's desire. So if you're totally stressed, you've got young kids, you're getting them ready, you're doing the housework, you've got a job, like, you know, that is going to put a huge dent in your desire and that's why you know your well-being is so linked to your sexual health and we shouldn't just think of sexual health as something on the side it's actually part of our full humanity to be able to um you know experience sexual pleasure for a lot of people if you Mm. you know there's asexual people and that's fine that's their choice too but a lot of people do want um a fulfilling relationship with whoever that is and and they want to have pleasure in their lives. And, and for some of them, pain is a major barrier to that. Indeed. Um, hopefully people do feel like they can at least raise it with their GPs. Yes. And, and realise that there are services out there for them to access, including, I believe, at the Royal Women's Hospital. Oh, that's great news. Yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, we are embarrassed to talk about it. And, and I think doctors are often embarrassed to bring it up, especially if they're a male doctor and a female patient, because now mm. there's all these things that, oh, am I being a pervert, you know, like, but we have to believe that a healthy, being a healthy sexual being is part of being a healthy human. And so I don't think we should should be embarrassed to bring it up with our doctors. Mm. Absolutely. Um, One of the issues that you raise as being something that disproportionately affects women that we may not realise and that is very, very poorly treated is chronic pain. And Mm. chronic pain is caused by so many different things. Um, So there's no way that we could possibly cover the the ways that Mm. one could get chronic pain Mm. Um, but you do say that women experience it a huge amount more than women I believe it was about 70 70 percent of people with chronic pain are women and it starts at a really young age Um, so science now has established that women have more intense pain and for longer periods than men and they're also less likely to have that treated than mm. men. So it's a real pickle we're in. Um, and and despite 70% of chronic pain patients being women, 80% of pain drugs have been tested on men or male mice. So, you know, I spoke to this pain researcher who said, we probably have tested drugs that would work on women and we've thrown them in the bin because they don't test on men. And it was only in 2016 that the National Institutes of Health, which is a US government organisation, which is the biggest funder of research in the world, said if you're studying pain, you have to include female rodents in your mm-hmm. preclinical studies. 
It was only a couple of years ago. It's crazy. Yeah. And you're right. Like we, medicine is split into these different specialties that all look at different parts. So the gynecologist does this, the, you know, um, urologist does that and the orthopaedic surgeon looks at bones and they, they look at everything separately but pain doesn't work that way. Pain it, it works across all those symptoms and it's perceived in the central nervous system and the brain and um, you know, medicine acknowledges that they're really far behind in the in in understanding chronic pain. Mm. Mm. And there are so many different um, ways that it could be experienced as well. Like you, there's neurological pain, mm-hmm. and then there's muscular pain and inflammatory pain, and there's sometimes overlapping. You know, in those areas Um, but it means that there are different ways of treating it that are effective or ineffective and also that are taboo Um, particularly I'm thinking uh, any kind of painkillers now Mm. nowadays there's a lot of reluctance and apprehension around prescription painkillers but there are a lot of people who that's their last option to be not in pain all the time so it's quite an inadequate approach um, that medicine continues to take which given that as you say women are more affected by pain are also you know dealing with that reality more than men Mm. it's a really complex and and difficult issue to unpick Um, I will say that there are some treatments that work for some people but it's a bit of a trial and error basis because you know, not the not thing that works for me won't work for the next woman or the next person with chronic pain. But um, there are some things that work, and you you kind of have to be willing to. Well, you know, it's really difficult because it's, it's the onus shouldn't be on women to make changes because. Mm. Um, sometimes the more you demand and the more doctors you go to in order to get a diagnosis ends up working against you and they think that's evidence of you being hysterical instead of evidence of you wanting your pain treated. Um, But, you know, there are doctors out there who care, who have some tools, who are willing to try. And I, I think, you know, the best thing that I think you can do is, you know, have a GP who you trust and who trusts you and who you know and you go to the same GP all the time. Mm. I think that's that's our best chance for getting good treatment at the moment. But, yeah, there is evidence that, uh, that once you get one of these chronic pain conditions that you're sensitised to other chronic pain conditions. And, yes, it's true that opioids, the prescription painkillers do make chronic pain worse and that's why doctors will be really reluctant to give them to chronic pain patients because it creates more and more pain and more problems Mm. Um, but pain also shouldn't be just put up with especially you know you were talking about period pain a bit earlier and you know women are told it's normal and so there's this kind of I'll just be stoic and I'll put up with it but Mm. actually having bad period pain over a long period of time can actually create more chronic pain conditions in your later life. So by putting up with it from a young age, you could be setting yourself up for a lifetime of pain conditions. So don't put up with, mm. if, you know, pain Pain on the first one or two days of bleeding that can be managed by the contraceptive pill or taking neurofen and paracetamol or naprogesic, one of those things. That's totally normal. But as you say, if it starts to interfere with your life, you can't go to school, you can't go to work, you've given up a sport, you're not showing up to social functions, that's when you need to get it investigated and and start getting it treated because mm. putting up with it could just be setting you up for, for worse down the line. Indeed. And in terms of women and illnesses that 
do disproportionately affect them. One of the most harrowing categories of illness is autoimmune illnesses, Mm. which are exceptionally complex. They're multi-system, which means they affect multiple organs often. And so then you get on that roundabout of seeing multiple specialists because there's not one specialist who could deal with Mm. the one you know, illness that you might finally get diagnosed with. And um, you, you write the fact that delay, there are major delays in being diagnosed. Major. For, mm. And because a lot of these um, illnesses have symptoms that overlap with one another, there's a lot of murkiness. Mm. And often um, I've, you know, heard and seen doctors kind of throw up their hands and say, oh, it's too complicated or, oh, you've got all these symptoms. They don't fit neatly into this one illness. So mm. it must not be that. Yeah, look, I think this is really hard for doctors because no doctor leaves medical school with all the tools required to help them manage a chronic pain patient or an autoimmune, you know, patient with an autoimmune disease. Having said that, you know, medicine has known for you know, 100 years that women are more likely to have autoimmune conditions than men. They know that the female and male autoimmune systems work differently, that women produce more antibodies and um, like maybe one of the reasons women live longer, they survive illnesses that would kill men. Um, and and when so therefore when men have autoimmune conditions, they tend to be more severe than in women. Mm. But the vast majority of autoimmune patients are women again. So we've known that for 100 years. Why hasn't anyone looked into it what's going on here and um you know susan evans a gynecologist and pain physician who i interview in my book says that she has patients coming to her all the time saying oh god my my gp says i'm a mystery and she says oh really you sound exactly the same as the person i just saw before you and the person before that and the person before that and it is true it's hard because you know they're not equipped with this information they don't have the tools yet but if you really listen to patients and you and you uh, listen to their symptoms actually there is a pretty common picture painted and um you know evans has basically worked out more about how endometriosis and chronic pelvic pain works through 20 years of collecting patient questionnaires than from any of the research. That's really Mm. informing her research going forward because she now realises that having endometriosis is not necessarily the cause of the pain. The cause of the chronic pain and the multi-system pain, you know, a lot of people with endo or pelvic pain also have bladder, painful bladder syndrome or irritable bowel syndrome. They have muscle spasms in their pelvic floor muscles and they have dizziness and nausea and fatigue. And, um, you know, this has always been a mystery. But now she's worked out that people with bad period pain have all those symptoms, not necessarily with or without endo. Some people mm. have endometriosis and don't have any of those symptoms. Um, but it's actually chronic, uh, really bad period pain ongoing for many years that is, um, you know, the key, the, the key factor in all of those other symptoms. Indeed. And so when a doctor can't find a pathology, as in something to show up on a scan, where does that leave women? Yeah, that's, this is it. This is the pain that can't be seen. Mm. And it, because it doesn't show up on an x-ray or a scan, they think it's... Medicine has traditionally believed that that must be in their mind, must be psychological, you must be making it up. But now we know that um, 
it, this, it's, it's, they believe it's the sensitization of the central nervous system that the pain pathways become sensitized, and you, you know, that they don't have the tools to show that yet on a scan. Um, there's some kind of FRM, fMRIs that are starting to show bits of it, but really, this is the beginning of chronic pain research. We're right mm-hmm. at the beginning, and it's really hard to get grants because it doesn't fit into the normal research grant process. Um, and so this is this is something that really a lot of money and time and effort needs to go into understanding better. Yeah. One of the points you made that stuck out to me is that when a doctor or medical student is being trained, they're not really equipped with how to deal with a situation when you can't figure out what's wrong. And instead as we've kind of indicated, often a, an arbitrary label gets placed on patients mm. and it could be something like um, conversion disorder, which is something that uh, Jennifer Breyer, who was diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome um, eventually and another um, biological issue that actually explained the chronic fatigue syndrome, but she had that um, labelled onto her Mm. as soon as she got unwell. As you said, there's medically unexplained illness, Mm. which is kind of like a very vague label. There's also um, functional disorders. So you've got a functional neurological system. We can't explain it through biology, so it must be caused by something else other than your biology, Mm. um, which, you know, read between the lines yeah they're just modern words for hysteria yeah Mm. and and what is also quite disturbing is that a lot of people I believe um, are misdiagnosed with things like fibromyalgia because it does cover such a broad range of symptoms yeah that people just put you in that basket because oh well at least then you've got a label Mm. yeah I mean I looking back now as I said earlier I was diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome I don't fit that diagnosis at all now that I've looked into it and looked at the criteria I don't and I recognize what I was going through as a kind of endometriosis flare-up I have these flare-ups every now and again but now I know that they're not going to last and it's much easier to cope with but that happens all the time misdiagnosis getting put in a basket just to kind of shut you up because they think you're hysterical and you just want a diagnosis because mm. you're anxious about your health or whatever. But, uh, you know, I think that the, the medical schools aren't really teaching students to, to deal with medical uncertainty. Like, of course, medicine doesn't know everything about the human body and they may never know everything about the human body, but mm. they're not. that's not really trained. You know, one, one GP I interviewed for the book said, you know, we're kind of taught we can either cure people or palliate people. But there was nothing that prepared me for all the patients who would come in with all these symptoms who I couldn't cure, but they weren't dying. And I didn't know what to do with them. And, yeah. um, you know, she found this wonderful mentor. And, um, and that's how she learned how to deal with these chronic pain patients. But that's, you know, you have to be lucky to find the right mentor. Mm. And what makes me um, have hope is that there are so many, well, pretty much every doctor who goes into medicine has excellent intentions and wants to help people. Um, and so they're motivated to help and they want to solve problems and to get to the bottom of things for other people. So there is this underlying 
goodwill in general to do that but then we get lost along the way yeah. and there's unconscious bias that exists there's also conscious bias mm. um and you know everyday sexism and systemic sexism and these as you say kinds of sexism and discrimination exists not just in medicine but across a woman's life mm. in her workplace mm-hmm. um in her home in, in her the social system. life yeah exactly mm. in the justice system i mean this is something that is not confined to medicine but it's very rare that it has been really looked at in such great depth um and to looked at the the various facets of how gender and sex can affect uh, outcomes in medicine mm. and i think that was one of the things that really um I think was really instructive for me. I didn't didn't set out to have this chapter on medical practice, but once I started looking at it, I realised oh, this is why it's happening. Our medical system, firstly, isn't set up to deal with chronic um, conditions at all, but that every step of the way, everything about women's health is really deprioritised. You know, the the what uh, what you get, what a doctor gets paid to do anything to a woman is so small. The, the most the most poorly paid specialties are GPs, gynaecologists. You know, mm. um, so everything about women's health is really undervalued. And um, if you look after a chronic pain patient and you do it well, you basically end up losing money. That's how our medical system treats you know, chronic pain conditions. So, you know, when you do find a doctor who gives you the time and understanding, it's like, you know, they're probably earning less than all their colleagues mm, by doing that. Yeah. Uh, the one example that really sticks out for me is um, the insertion of the marina. So a doctor has to get an extra qualification to be able to put in an IUD device and um, a nurse is usually present, has to be there for it, and Medicare pays them $57 or something like that for that. Now, the time it takes to do the insertion of the marina, another doctor could have seen three patients and could have earned double what that doctor and the nurse earns. So what is the incentives for doctors to go and get that extra qualification and to do it? It's yeah, amazing. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I just no, get no. so worked up about this because everything is going against a woman getting yeah. good treatment, and you know it's not. That's why I say it's not doctors' faults mm. that they're not treating women well. I mean, of course, you know, there's it's just part of being human to listen to people and kind of first up believe what they're telling you, but there's a lot that has to change. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, Gabrielle, it's been so fantastic to speak with you and I really hope people can read your book because there's so many things that we've not even mentioned yet and um, it is really vitally important and, as you say, it's a call to arms and I think um, it really benefits men and women um, to read this and doctors and patients and politicians as well to understand this issue and how the system itself works against women and um, how we can empower doctors as well as patients to have a better um, relationship. Mm. Yeah, so many doctors have been supporting this book. They're like, at last someone's talking about this. We want more information. We want to be able to help people better. So Exactly. Yeah, it's great in that way. Totally. Thank you so much for for doing this and and good luck on the rest of your tour. And also I think there's an event tonight at Readings. Readings in Carlton, yes. Awesome. So people can get along at 6.30. Yes. Awesome. Thank you No doubt it will be a great conversation. I hope so. I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense Podcast. 
Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.